Hello and welcome everybody to this week's episode of Cultural Corner. I'm Dr. Carrie, and I'm so glad to have you tuning in with me today. So today, um, what I thought we would do is talk a bit about how anthropologists treat this analytic of health and illness. Um, so I'm going to ask you to, to actually close your eyes for a second uh, and really think about what comes to mind, right? When I say these words, health and illness. So for our North American listeners, uh, you might conjure up these images of doctors donning white coats and uh, types of PPE. Maybe you think of uh, sterilized uh, spaces, exam rooms, operating rooms, or reclining back in a dentist chair. Uh, maybe you think of uh, objects associated uh, with medicine, instruments like a stethoscope or an x-ray machine or a blood pressure monitor. Um, and I'm sure some of you might be thinking about uh, prescription medicines manufactured by pharmaceutical companies. These spaces, these institutions, these objects, these symbols are really emblematic of what we call in anthropology conventional biomedicine, which is this field that seeks to apply biology and science to diagnosing and treating disease. Now, biomedicine is uh, not a cultural universal. It's really only one approach to health and illness. And uh, it's one that's really generally found uh, in Western cultures like uh, the US. Now, issues about health and illness have always been of concern to people around the world, uh, probably since the dawn of humankind. So today's conventional thinking views things like good genes and healthy behaviors, uh, not smoking, eating healthy and exercising, as these kinds of uh, keys or formula to attaining wellness. But anthropologists uh, really have questioned whether these are sufficient alone to explain why it is that some people get sick more often than others why some people suffer longer than others, and why some seem to die much younger than others. It's really kind of interesting to me to look at how the World Health Organization defines this word health. So health, they say, is not only just the absence of disease, but it also entails a complete uh, physical mental and social state of well-being. So now when you think about health like this, I think we realize that, uh, you know, not many people we know or not many people around the world um, embody health in this sense. Even those in the wealthiest nations that have access to cutting edge medical technology. You know, most people are probably getting by, right? Uh, they're able to get out of bed, go to work uh, or school and reproduce. Uh, these are really life's uh, most basic and essential tasks. It's really interesting uh, to think about how many people we might know are functionally healthy and so that they're able to meet those basic necessities, but are probably doing so in a state of imperfect health, uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, to balance disease, uh, treat disease like high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, 
even chronic depression, social anxiety disorder, and PTSD. Uh, now, the specialty of medical anthropology emerged uh, in the 1980s. In its most general sense, medical anthropologists look at uh, the cultural dimension of health, illness, and the body. And they can do so from the scale of local communities, even up to the scale of public health issues that are uh, really global in nature. Ethnographic fieldwork, which, you know, we've talked about uh, this entire podcast series as the cornerstone of cultural anthropology, um, all of its tools, like uh, participant observation, deep immersion in communities have proven to be pretty useful methods in understanding the role that culture plays in shaping uh, ideas that people hold around the world about disease, illness, sickness, and healing, uh, as well as how people uh, experience these things all over the globe. So medical anthropologists are interested really in so many um, interesting questions. Um, and we'll talk about just a few examples. So how do humans across cultures make sense of health and illness, right? That's one question. Another one might be how do people around the world experience, talk about, and feel about pain, suffering, uh, even birth, uh, death, and dying? What role does power, economic systems, uh, and race, class, and gender, what role do these things play in access to a healthcare system? Are healthcare systems in and of themselves uh, these kinds of institutions of power that structure who receives treatment, uh, which could be a case of life or death? Uh, really, medical anthropologists see health as a kind of reflection of people's uh, living circumstances, the environment, access to nutrition, uh, access to housing, clean water, education, but also a lack of violence, war, and poverty. So what I thought we would do in this podcast is really highlight two focal areas uh, within medical anthropology. And I'd like to begin by talking a bit about ethnomedicine, uh, which is the study of local systems of health and healing, uh, because that's been sort of the central focus of medical anthropology, I'd say really since the field was established. I think there's always been this uh, great cu uh, curiosity about indigenous and natural healing modalities like um, herbs, teas, uh, and massage on the part of Western anthropologists. Uh, right now, I'm actually training as a Reiki practitioner under a master Reiki teacher. Reiki is this kind of healing art that's rooted in Tendai Buddhism and Shintoism. Now, the word Reiki translates roughly into English as universal life energy. So the energy that Reiki practitioners work with is called chi, um, which, uh, you know, I wonder if some of you may have heard of before, as it's the same energy that acupuncturists uh, actually work with. Uh, the process of becoming a Reiki healer involves these kind of interesting various uh, stages of initiation and rites of passage. Um, it involves some level of intense study, certainly, 
Um, and there's also a practicum component, right? There are also uh, special so-called attunements that are performed by masters uh, at each stage of a student's initiation. This is usually done uh, in a meditative state, uh, when the student is in a meditative state, rather. And as somebody who's experienced them, uh, you know, they kind of feel uh, interesting, sort of like this warm and peaceful feeling. It's said that uh, the various attunements that students receive incrementally uh, connect them to an unlimited source of healing energy. But now today in the West, uh, Reiki uh, is really practiced as complementary medicine uh, to support the body's natural ability to heal. So uh, Reiki treatments, as they're called, involve a laying on of hands to restore energetic balance in the body. Uh, within the Reiki system of healing, a disease, or sometimes uh, it's pronounced dis-ease, so D-I-S, hyphen ease, right? Uh, so disease or disease of the body, mind, and spirit are believed to happen uh, when energetic balances are off. Um, and even likewise, some illnesses, uh, depression, for example, are believed to create uh, energetic blockages uh, or imbalances within the body. So we work with our hands in Reiki to channel uh, this light energy throughout the body's meridians, which are these, uh, like, they're almost, I almost think of them as highways. They're like these pathways that she runs along. Uh, so we work with the meridians and we also work throughout the layers of energetic fields that are believed within the Reiki system of healing to surround the body. So within this system of Reiki thought, treatments are aimed to uh, put a client in a harmonized state of energy so that healing can take place on all levels, physical, emotional, and spiritual. So in Reiki, we work with our hands really to almost sort of feel, I shouldn't say almost, to literally to feel for and root out any energetic imbalances uh, with particular focus on the seven major chakras if deemed necessary uh, for treatment. Reiki practitioners might also integrate things like crystals, uh, special symbols, pendulums, um, and they may even consult spirit guides or spirit animals if they work with them and integrate that as part of their practice. But as a practitioner, it's really kind of interesting to me to see how people respond during a Reiki treatment. So most people that I've treated uh, fall asleep or slip in and out of sleep within just five minutes or so of sitting on the table. And in some instances, uh, people's limbs have this sort of strange involuntary twitching or jerking reaction, uh, which the Reiki system of healing interprets as awakening this life force energy. But most people report tingling, um, a sense of warmth, uh, and the sense of sort of general relaxation, uh, that they've achieved a state of peace. Uh, there's a medical anthropologist that I also want to talk to you about. Uh, his name is Laurent Portier, who addresses another system of ethnomedicine in his ethnography titled Tibetan Medicine 
in the Contemporary World, which was published in 2008. So the setting of his ethnography is in the rural Ladakh region of northern India. So even though Ladakh is three times larger uh, than Switzerland, it's actually really sparsely populated. So healthcare in Ladakh is administered by about 200 so-called Amchis who practice uh, throughout the region. And Amchis are uh, traditional Tibetan Buddhist healers. So they might interview patients, uh, they look at bodily waste samples, they might take uh, the pulse to diagnose a patient, and they might uh, recommend things like changes in diet, social behavior, um, and even spiritual practice as forms of treatment. Traditional Amchis make their own plant and mineral medicines, which uh, might become also part of a patient's treatment plan. Um, and interestingly enough, Portier notes that uh, these are actually rather effective treatments. His research has also revealed, uh, you know, how globalization has threatened traditional Amchi practice. So for one, the Indian state strongly favors conventional biomedicine. And, uh, you know, at some level, there's been declining interest in traditional practices. Uh, now, second, the Indian military that's been dispatched to the Kashmir-India border is an obstacle uh, that Amchis have difficulty passing to obtain wild medicines that grow there specifically. And lastly, uh, Portier uh, uh, describes how the transition to a market economy has pressured Amchis to run their practices more like a business, uh, leaving far less freedom to gather natural plant and mineral medicines, uh, which had uh, really been a cornerstone treatment in that health system. I'd like to pivot uh, this next uh, segment or portion of our talk uh, to the concept of power, which I think really has been central to understanding how inequalities and disparities in healthcare are structured around the world. So in the late 19th century, uh, Rudolf Virchow, uh, considered by many to be a key founder of the field of medical anthropology, questioned why the distribution of health and illness uh, mirrored the distribution of wealth and power, right? So his line of thinking really inspired uh, generations of critical medical anthropologists who investigate the underlying causes of health disparities. Now, in her ethnography uh, titled Reproducing Race, published in uh, 2011, Anthropologist Kiara Bridges looks at how reproductive healthcare is administered to poor women of color on Medicaid. Um, and she's actually doing her field work in a very noted uh, hospital located in Manhattan's uh, east side. So Bridges discovered uh, the prejudice stereotypes uh, physicians and staff held about their patients. Um, so for example, the assumption that black women um, uh, are able to endure intense pain from disease and medical procedures, right? Bridges suggests that these very attitudes may be contributing to the health disparities that are experienced by women of color, 
but she also notes how, uh, and I think this is interesting, there is so much reluctance within Western medicine to address the attitudes of physicians. Physicians' racism, uh, Bridges notes, is curiously never addressed in medical literature. There's one more ethnography that I'd like to discuss that speaks, uh, I think, importantly to the issue of health disparities. It's a very powerful article, um, and it's titled Life and Times of Magda A. It was published in 2008 by uh, DDA Fasson and colleagues. Um, and they situate one woman's story and experience of sexual violence and HIV positive status within the historical context and cultural system in which it unfolded in South Africa. So uh, the aim of their piece, um, and I'll quote just a, a part of it directly here, the aim of their piece is to quote, link an ethnography of gender violence, economic inequality, and racial discrimination with the epidemiology of infection, end quote. Um, so, you know, we've read a few portrait ethnographies before. Uh, Sienna Craig's portrait of a Himalayan healer, right? Um, and Audra Simpson's uh, Mohawk Interruptus, I think, kind of falls into this category. Uh, ethnographic portraits are really very interesting to me. And I think one way we want to read these is as an element uh, that is emblematic of a collective kind of experience. I like how Fassine and colleagues creatively structure their article so that each sort of like chapter of Magda's life is composed of these little vignettes that form this very descriptive kind of ethnographic scene. So as you're reading that uh, this week, you might want to observe that. Um, the story begins, right, when Magda's mother left in search of work outside the community. Uh, Magna was raised by her maternal grandmother, um, but she experienced sexual violence by her uncle uh, really throughout her childhood. And, uh, you know, also later on as a teenager by her stepfather uh, when she moved into her mom's house uh, where she helped them grow uh, and sell cannabis. But as a young adult, uh, Magda left that situation and ultimately moved in with her maternal aunt in uh, Johannesburg. Her aunt advises her, right, almost immediately that, quote, if you're hungry, you must get, uh, get yourself a boyfriend so that you can eat, end quote. Now, economic constraints, as the authors write, uh, quote, make the financial support of boyfriends a vital necessity as well as a social norm, end quote. So we learned through Magda's story, you guys, that women commonly exchange sex for meals, sex for housing, sex for what is needed to survive. And this is something that anthropologist Janet Wasicki calls survival sex. So fascinating colleagues uh, in their article here, uh, you know, note that survival sex uh, is, quote, a reduction of the body to merchandise that is, moreover, little valued in the market, the exchange of sex for food, end quote. 
Now, upon the birth of her first child, uh, Magna discovered that she, the baby, and the baby's father are HIV positive. Um, at this time, life-saving antiretroviral drugs were not yet available in South Africa, um, and sadly, her baby uh, does pass away. Magda had a second child, uh, though uh, some time after that, a little boy. Uh, later on, when antiretrovirals were administered by the state to prevent uh, mother-to-child infection. Uh, Magna goes on to receive social grants uh, for her illness, but uh, also to assist with raising her child. Um, and soon after, uh, takes up salary work uh, at an NGO that provides support to HIV-positive patients. This marks a new chapter in Magda's life as an AIDS activist. So as part of this network uh, that Magda finds herself in now, she learns of experimental treatments um, and was actually recruited for a clinical trial uh, that at the time of the author's writing uh, seems to have been uh, pretty successful for her. Now, the authors note how incest and sexual violence have long been ignored in South Africa, uh, only becoming this major issue around the year 2000 uh, during the AIDS crisis. So they explain how, quote, uh, AIDS, which is particularly rapid in the Black population, results from the combination of social, economic, and political factors rather than merely cultural ones, end quote. So Magda's story that I'm sort of paraphrasing for you here really just embodies this, right? Um, the authors go on to say that, quote, the migration of her parents in search of work has literally dismantled her family, but has left her at the mercy of her uncle's incestuous relations. The routinized political and ordinary violence in the homelands exposed her again and again to sexual abuse and pauperization, which led to the multiplication of male partners in sometimes extremely precarious conditions, end quote. So the author's ethnography uh, is significant on lots of levels, right? But another level that I wanna mention, I think, uh, is that it dismantles this mistaken, wicked stereotype of women that was perpetrated, I'm sorry, perpetuated uh, in South Africa, uh, you know, because mothers so frequently leave their children, they go off to sell cannabis and to brew beer and also offer sexual services in exchange for meals uh, in exchange for meals or money. Fassi and colleagues describe how these, quote, are not in fact cultural characteristics, but are structurally linked to labor migration and the consequent necessity of surviving in this context, end quote. So what I like about uh, Fassi and colleagues' piece here is that it meets medical anthropology's call to investigate the cultural structures and the issues of power that perpetuate health disparities around the globe. Importantly, Fassian and colleagues, I think, really help readers see this clearly through Magda's story, which tells of Magda's experience. 
understanding the cross-cultural experience of pain, of illness, uh, and health disparity is something that is profoundly of anthropological concern. Before we wrap up today, allow me to highlight uh, some of the resources that you'll see in the Digging Deeper section this week. So the rising cost of healthcare in the US certainly disenfranchises uh, millions of Americans from the healthcare system. You'll see that I link you to a Gallup poll that indicates Americans are avoiding potentially life-saving medical treatment out of economic necessity, right, if they developed symptoms of COVID-19. I have another article for you to peruse. Um, it's a consumer report that investigates this ballooning cost of prescription medications in the U.S. Really alarmingly, the report indicates there is, quote, no federal law or regulation that effectively keeps uh, drug prices in check, end quote. And finally, I left an article for you to check out uh, uh, that reports on Florida Atlantic University's study of indigenous medicinal plant use in the Amazon rainforest. So here's a case where scientists collaborated uh, with the local Kichwa and Kamakmaki communities on the project. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, their preliminary findings indicate that properties of certain plants, right, within the uh, healing system, within the local healing system, uh, might be very effective treatments uh, for common diseases, uh, type 2 diabetes and Alzheimer's. So, uh, folks, with that, um, we've actually reached the conclusion of this year's season of Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Thank you very much for listening uh, and learning with me this semester. You know, I think as we part ways today, it seems fitting to close this podcast with a favorite Sanskrit mantra. Loka Samasta Sukino Bhavantu. May all beings everywhere be happy and free. And may the thoughts, words, and actions of my own life contribute in some way to that happiness and to that freedom for all. So with that mantra in mind, my listeners, take good care and keep close the tools of anthropology and its lessons. Namaste.